0: You're listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for June 2017. Big thanks to my colleague, Caitlin Cox, who hosted the May edition so I could ride my bike in the hills of southern France. I'm home sweet home now. Happily, there have been plenty of ups and downs in the cardiology news landscape to keep the entire TCTMD news team peddling at a fast clip all month. Let's jump in.
1: those of us who have been in technology for a very long time who understand that when technologies stumble they provide the greatest opportunity to learn and to advance it is precisely where we are today in this realm the stumbling that has occurred as you will see will lead to greater and greater science and greater and greater advances
0: those glass-half-full remarks were from Elazar Edelman, who opened a session at last month's EuroPCR meeting looking at newer-generation bioresorbable scaffolds. TCTMD's Yael Maxwell was there and pulled together a feature story a few weeks later. Of course, we've done a lot of stories about the stumbling that Edelman was referring to, that is, the disappointments and setbacks faced by the first-generation Absorb GT1 BVS. Yael's story was a wrap-up of new devices, many of which have smaller struts and are designed to biodegrade a little bit faster than the absorb. You'll have to check out Yael's feature to learn more about each of these new technologies, but at least according to the earliest results from these small studies, they seem to be facing lower rates of the thing everyone is worked up about, scaffold thrombosis. All of these studies, however, included very few people or had follow-up of just six months or one year. Only time will tell whether these up-and-comers have learned from some of the problems encountered by Absorb, as well as whether deployment techniques will have an impact long-term. Alexander Abizade thinks they might. Here he is, speaking at EuroPCR 2017.
2: When the companies invest a little bit more in larger randomized trials, we're going to be more and more convinced that these futures, together with good deployment technique, will prevail. I'm not saying that it's going to replace 100% metallic scaffolds. I mean, we've been working and and developing metallic scaffolds uh, for the past 20 years, so this is still in the teenage phase. But I think that there is a future.
0: Also at that session, Roxana Moran pointed out that the early results with Absorb were also very exciting, but longer follow-up with hard outcomes will tell the full story. Here's Moran.
1: This is exciting for uh, the next generation of uh, bioresorbable scaffolds, but I think we don't have clinical outcomes, and we have CE mark on a lot of these devices, and I think what we're seeing is a hope for the future of the clinical outcomes and improvement, and hopefully this time the technique won't be an issue, Mm -hmm. but I do not believe that we're out of the woods yet, at all, in understanding the thrombosis. All these zeros look good, but we all know that We need clinical
0: Not long ago, patients with peripheral artery disease got some very good news. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced that they will now cover supervised exercise for patients with PAD, something experts in this area have been calling on for years. Laura McEwen covered this announcement for TCTMD and spoke with Michael Jaff. He told her that he's been contacted by people around the country seeking tips on how to start their patients on the right program. You can find some of those in Laura's story, but to whet your appetite, have a listen to part of Laura's conversation with Jaff. For a while now, we've been hearing that supervised exercise is beneficial and that it should be an option, but it wasn't covered. So does the decision um, remove some of the barriers to access for patients?
1: Yeah, I should start off and let you know that this is something that I've been advocating for, for two decades and was recently involved, trying to think if this was, uh, a year ago or even a little longer ago at the head of CMS to petition this. Mm -hmm. And so I can't tell you how important this is. This is long overdue and ought to change the way patients with claudication are managed forever. I think up until now we've all given lip service to the value of exercise, but the data is non-arguable and the fact of the matter is with now a Medicare benefit covering patients with claudication, this has to be among the first-line therapies for virtually everyone.
0: Todd Neal covered a study that appeared in Jaha earlier this month looking at the decade-long trends in the incidence of in-hospital mortality associated with development of cardiogenic shock. In particular, the study drilled down into the timing of shock, whether it developed prior to hospital arrival, within 24 hours of hospitalization, or at a later time point. One of the striking findings here is that despite all the improvements this space has seen in the triage and treatment of patients with acute MI, mortality among shock patients remains devastatingly high. And while deaths have declined for patients who develop shock both early and later on in hospital, the proportion of patients who've died after developing shock before they reach the hospital has spiked. Joel Gore, one of the co-authors on this paper, spoke with Todd and highlighted some of the take-homes from this sobering study.
1: We know that all cardiogenic shock patients have a poor outcome unless they're aggressively treated. So so what we're suggesting here is for those that have out-of-hospital cardiogenic shock that, you know, therapies, you know, such as uh, emergent cardiac cath be instituted as soon as possible. Uh, the same is probably true for those that present within the first 24 hours. That's sort of a golden opportunity for us to, uh, you know, be aggressive and uh take these people we know that without cardiac cath without angioplasty and bypass surgery the mortality is going to be about 70 to 80%. So uh a, a very aggressive early approach to these patients is needed. And then the later ones I think it's 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 uh, important that uh patients are followed very closely in the you know in the ensuing days after they're admitted you know, there's a real push to get people out of the hospital length of stay is much shorter so that there's a tendency to you know uh, maybe miss an opportunity uh, to identify people that might present in or develop shock later so we're suggesting that if you can identify high risk people or people that are likely to go into shock you can spend more time and resources on those people to try to avoid it rather than ones that you're not likely to develop shock
0: Moving from acute MI to structural heart disease, I've got a couple of highlights to tell you about. Let's start with one of the eye-grabbing headlines we ran last week. One in ten TAVR patients are treated off-label. Michael Reardon covered this story based on data on almost 24,000 patients enrolled in the TVT registry and published in JAMA Cardiology. As lead investigator Ravi Hira stressed to Mike, this study didn't compare TAVR to surgery or to medical therapy. Instead, it looked at outcomes in the off-label patients as compared to patients treated for approved indications and found that one-year survival was approximately 75% in both groups. Here's Hira speaking with Mike about the study's findings.
1: We have not uh, evaluated or compared uh, the safety, efficacy, or cost effectiveness of TAVR to other therapies in these particular patients that mm-hmm. are on-label. We, we don't know if these patients would have done better with surgery or with medical therapy compared to TAVR. Right. What we have compared is right now Taver is on-label for these patients, right? What are the outcomes in these patients that are off-label, that are getting TAVR, uh compared to these on-label? And it's reassuring that a lot of these patients at one year, after adjustment, of course, are, are, are having similar outcomes to patients that are on-label. It takes a lot of the fear of doing... Um, the, the TAVR in, um, in off-label indications away. Uh, you know, there's still uh, a need to exercise caution in, in selecting these kinds of patients and determining which patients actually would still be, be good candidates. Not every patient with a bicuspid aortic valve or every patient with, uh, uh, with severe MR or severe AI would do equally well.
0: Mike and I were also at the TVT meeting mid-month, soaking up as much new Valve data and discussion as we could pack into a few days. I hope you'll check out our stories from the meeting, as well as the slides, videos, and live cases archived on our TVT conference page. I personally covered a presentation by Raj Makar, entitled A Critical Appraisal of Reprise 3. I take that with a grain of salt, since Macar himself was one of the highest enrollers in the trial, a randomized comparison of high-risk patients treated with the LOTUS or core valve transcatheter systems. But Macar did a nice job summing up some of the chatter we've been hearing since these results first came out at EuroPCR, most of it surrounding the high rate of pacemaker implantation with the LOTUS, the inclusion of paravalvular leaks in the primary endpoint, and the fact that only half of the comparator core valve arm received the newer generation Evolute-R. Here's Makar making his concluding remarks.
2: So, my take on reprise. This is first in series of new TAVR versus TAVR system trials, large multi-center. This was a very well-done study. The device was very effective at reducing paravalvular leaks, no valve uh, malposition uh, or embolization. 30 day strokes death rates were similar. New pacemaker rates of 35% are a significant concern. The future iterations in technology such as death card, LORDIZ. Lotus Edge can do what Evolute has done for Core Valve in addition to learning curves, I think Lotus will be a serious contender for market share. Now superiority in terms of composite endpoint point of death, disabling stroke and moderate severe paravalvular leak is an engineered win and is largely driven by higher paravalvular leak rates and somewhat by unexplainable disabling stroke rates and will be assessed by users in the context of high pacemaker rates. Somewhat. Inferior, and code inferior, though these hemodynamics are actually very similar to the most commonly used in triannular valve and high uh, valve thrombosis rates. The aggregate of data suggests that with certain pros and cons, LOTUS is clearly an acceptable alternative to commercially available uh, core valve or evolute valves.
0: Sticking with valves a little bit longer, let's take a glimpse into what the future might look like. Caitlin Cox recently wrapped up a fascinating feature story about the ways in which tissue engineering is being explored as a fix for faulty valves and other cardiac parts. The people active in this space believe that therapies for structural heart disease might one day involve growing devices anew, for lack of a better term. This would be done by building synthetic scaffolds or by harvesting tissue from patients or donors, human or animal. There are a lot of different paths being investigated, all of them in preclinical or first-in-human stages. But as Caitlin learned when she spoke with Martin Leon, even with all the excitement around transcatheter valves, an approach that strives to heal and grow valves in situ could really fill an unmet need. Here's Leon. Right now,
1: in the United States, which is supposed to be a civilized country, we are treating only 30% of adults with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. The other 70% are not getting valve implantation procedures for a variety of reasons and um, you can imagine in other parts of the world India they've been a hundred TAVRs done and it all has to do with cost and access in some parts of the world they delayed approving the Edwards valve because it was bovine pericardium and there were restrictions on what they thought was the risk of mad cow's disease so I think if you had something that's scalable that is polymeric based that leaves you with basically your own tissue because you're attracting your own cells. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be a very interesting solution. And I think that's exciting to pursue this because as we do, we're going to learn a lot. And if we don't use it for this purpose, we'll use it for something else.
0: Last but not least, let me introduce you to Ashley Lyles. Ashley is a graduate student in NYU's Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program and is this year's recipient of the Jason Kahn Fellowship in Medical Journalism at TCTMD. She's with us all summer. One of Ashley's first stories for TCTMD was based on a study by Bamba Guy and colleagues published in Jack Midmonth. It looked at the cardiovascular health of more than 7,300 patients, all of whom hailed from three cities in France and were aged 65 or older. Of this diverse group, just 5% met all or most of the American Heart Association's criteria for ideal cardiovascular health, while nearly 40% were classified as being in poor CV health. Compared with subjects in the poor category, however, those with intermediate or ideal CV health saw significant decreases in the risk of coronary heart disease and stroke over nearly nine years of follow-up, ranging from 31% in the intermediate group to a 67% decrease in the ideal group. You'll be hearing more from Ashley next month, but for now, here's part of Ashley's conversation with Aaron Mikos, who commented on the findings for Ashley's story.
1: So, based on looking at the study, I was just wondering what was your overall impression of it, and why do you think the findings are meaningful? So, you know, I think this is really important. This continue to work in this area about promotion of ideal cardiovascular health because. We currently are spending most of our economic resources on disease treatment and not really disease prevention. And this is a sort of important, you know, sort of quote that I hear is, you know, stop, you know, mopping up the floor but turning off the faucet, meaning we really need to, as a society, you know, put our efforts into um, promotion of wellness and ideal cardiovascular health.
0: I hope you'll visit tctmd.com to check out more of our stories. In particular, have a look under the News tab for Todd Neal's investigation into the off-label use of guide catheters for thrombus aspiration in acute stroke. Is this a big deal or not? A big thanks all of you who came up to introduce yourselves to me and Mike at TVT2017. It's always great to put a face to a name and to hear about projects you have on the go. In fact, even if I never get to meet you face to face, I hope you'll seek out my contact information on TCTMD or find me on Twitter to pass along any news you think we should follow up on. We've also been making some behind-the-scenes changes on the website. If you're looking to evade your in-laws during their annual summer visit, have a prowl around our new and improved conference pages and send us your frank feedback. If you are not a subscriber to Heart Sounds, you are missing out. Search the words Heart Sounds and Cardiology on iTunes or Google Play, or subscribe via SoundCloud. That is a wrap for the June edition of Heart Sounds. Thanks for listening.